Friends, as I sort of mentioned, our, our theme today, what happens when God speaks? Whenever God speaks, may we, his servants, just like Samuel, always be listening. Amen. So in our readings today, you got to hear about two important figures, two kind of interesting figures in biblical history. You've got John the Baptist, you've got Samuel. And there's a lot of interesting parallels between these two gentlemen. So both of them were miraculous pregnancies. Both of their mothers had been unable to conceive for a long time and had been offering that up to God with with prayers, with petitions, before God finally miraculously granted John's mother, Elizabeth, Samuel's mother, Hannah, uh, these baby boys. Both of them were also early on set apart for ministry to God's people. And both of them, their ministries you could call preparatory in some ways. They were called to prepare God's people for something that was coming. So John, you've got, as we saw, preparing people for Jesus. And Samuel, on the other hand, is called at his time to prepare God's people for their kings. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, Samuel's role was to lead Israel from the kind of disparate confederation of states that they were into a monarchic kingdom under a king who would lead them. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We heard a fair amount about him about a month ago. One of my sermons during the Advent season really focused on who John was and what are some of the lessons we learned from his life and from his focus in ministry. Today, I want to talk about this other fellow, Samuel. And a little bit maybe more of an obscure figure in Bible history. And so rather than just this uh, particular event in his life that we read about there, him, him waking up in the night with God calling to him, I want to talk about how we get to that point. What leads up to that? What exactly is going on in this event? And then uh, what comes out of that through the rest of Samuel's life? And as we think about who this Samuel fellow is, there's going to be a number of what you'd call sort of application type truths that we can take, right? Ways that we can ask, you know, what does this tell me about how God wants me to live life? About uh, what God's desire is for my life? Application to our own life type truths. But I would say overall, most importantly, the thing that we're going to see in Samuel's life is God's grace, that God shows through his calling of Samuel, his raising up of Samuel, his dealing with his people through Samuel, is a gracious, merciful, compassionate God. So again, you've got this mother, Hannah is Samuel's mother's name, and she for a long time has been praying for a baby boy. We, we first meet Hannah at the very beginning of this book of the Bible that we're reading from there, First uh, Samuel chapter 1. God hears her prayers, but only after a long time. Uh, it seems like the final prayer that she makes before God finally gives her this baby, she's there in their church, which at the time was a, a tent kind of building called the Tabernacle. And she is just down on her knees, praying fervently that God finally send her this baby. It was kind of a spiritual low point for the nation of Israel as a whole. Hannah's faith and devotion to God kind of stands out at the time. Not a whole lot of people were in worship. Not a whole lot of people were, were coming to hear God's word and to pray to him. In fact, when Eli, the priest at the time, sees Hannah there in the tabernacle, fervently praying passionately, he comes up to her and he says, woman, quit drinking. She, he thinks she's a drunk sitting there in church, kind of like bobbing back and forth. Apparently that's how bad things were at the time, that that would not have been super weird for him to have to chase a drunk out of church. 
But she wasn't. Hannah was just there praying fervently to God for this, this baby boy that she desired with all her heart. And when she's finally given this baby, she rejoices. And when he's born, she brings him to the tabernacle. She shows Eli, look, God answered this prayer. And Eli rejoices with her. And then Hannah does something incredible. She says, I'm going to let this baby boy, when he's old enough, about school age, seems to be when she does it, I'm going to let him stay here. He's going to be raised here. He's going to serve God for the rest of his life here in the church. And God is gracious, even beyond what he was already gracious with Hannah then. He gives her three more sons, two daughters, this woman who had prayed for years for a baby. And Samuel, when he's school age again, probably something around four or five, she lets him stay there. And they go back home and every year they come up regularly for festivals and she comes and she brings gifts for her baby boy up there at the temple. He grows up. He grows up there serving in the tabernacle, kind of what we would think of as maybe like an altar boy. What we read here earlier takes place when he's probably around 12 years old. Samuel's learned how to serve. Samuel's learned how to work. And Samuel works for Eli, the priest, the one who is God's appointed representative. Samuel helps him. Eli's old. Samuel is there to help him light the candles, clean things, move things around, anything that a 12-year-old can get to that a, an older man just simply couldn't. And it's at this point that this word from God comes. Samuel, in the middle of the night, God starts speaking to him. We're told again that this was sort of a spiritual low point in Israel's history. And our, our text says that the word of the Lord was rare, that there weren't many visions. Why was God's word rare? It doesn't seem actually that God was sort of quieter than usual. It doesn't seem that God was trying to, to remove his word from the people. In fact, just before what we read in the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a prophet who comes to Eli with a particular message for him. Uh, directly from God through this prophet to Eli. There were still prophets sharing direct messages from God with people. And what we're told is the word of the Lord was rare. It's not that God was particularly quiet. It's not that God had shut himself up. But his people were not interested in listening to him didn't want to hear from God in his word. Again, at the time, there were only three priests serving the whole nation of Israel in the temple at Shiloh, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. That's it. That's all this whole nation needed was three priests, three pastors. Really? There just weren't people showing up to worship. There weren't people interested in hearing from God's word. That's all that was necessary to serve the amount of people who were actually coming. But then this word comes the middle of the night here Samuel Samuel you know there's a warning in the fact that there were not needed many preachers teachers pastors priests at the time as a warning for us right God's church is never immune to devaluing his word God's church is never immune to the thought that well you know I've heard it before I don't know that I really need it New Testament, as we are now, or Old Testament, there's always the temptation for God's people to, to forget the, the centrality, the importance of hearing from God in his word. We can do that in two ways, right? We can, just like the Israelites had, sort of not even show up, uh, forget that it's important, forget that it's worthwhile to hear from God and to gather together with other people. We can do that. And on the other hand, we can fill up our worship with 
all manner of things that don't really have any bearing. We can fill up our worship with what we'd call like man-made religious inventions. So special prayers and candles and bells and, and robes and choirs and liturgies. Not that none of those things are worthwhile. Right? So it is worthwhile to find things that sort of dress up worship, that, that spark our minds as much as, and our eyes and bring all our senses into play. But when we fill our worship with those things, sometimes we can find that God's word doesn't have a place anymore. That seems to be what happened at the time for the Israelites. You've got Samuel here who we're told didn't know the word of the Lord. Again, it's not that God's word wasn't being spoken through prophets and it's not that they wouldn't have had written word of God like the Bible, like we have. They would have had less because a lot of it just hadn't been written yet. But Samuel could have known the word. He didn't. We're just told this young man who was serving in the temple did not yet know the Lord. Isn't that kind of a sad condemnation of Eli's ministry? Right? He had not shared the word of God with young Samuel. He had taught Samuel the rituals and the ceremonies of being in worship. He had never taught Samuel what these things meant. And I've got an anecdote, a story that comes to mind for me here. So I've got a, an acquaintance here locally who's Roman Catholic. Just kind of a, yeah, I wouldn't even say a friend necessarily, but an acquaintance. Met him through our, our kids' school. He knows that I'm a pastor. And so one day, as we were chatting, he started complaining to me about an experience he had at their church recently. So the priest had made this big deal of, of making sure that all the families, all the kids showed up for Children's Sunday, a, a special mass in particular for all the kids. Really made a big deal about it. Really laid it on people's consciences, like, be there for this particular Sunday. And so he came with his kids, and a lot of parents came with their kids. And what he expected, right, what he was hoping for, what he had a right to expect was that there was going to be something in the message that Sunday about, about kids and parents and families and how we bring the word of God into our family lives. That's what he was expecting. He tells me instead that the priest's message that Sunday was for the kids. All right, so when it's time for your first communion, here's how you hold your hands out. That was, that was the message for that Sunday. And he was mad. He says to me, you're a preacher, Tim. Isn't there something better? like more worthwhile, more fulfilling for, for a preacher to bring out of the Bible for me and my kids and our family and our life? There is, right? Yeah, of course there is. He's mad at his priest. He's disappointed in his priest. I'm disappointed in his priest, sure. I'm also kind of disappointed in him because he knows that that's the kind of thing he gets there. And he's still there. I told him, what? so why are you still there? Why are you still going somewhere where you don't have someone bringing from you what you know you could get in the Bible? God's word applied to your life, your family's life, in a way that, that builds you up in, in faith and love with one another. And they didn't have a good answer for that. There isn't really a good answer. Right? When you know that you're not getting fed with what you can be fed with in God's word, why not seek it out? Why not try and find it? Eli, and I'll say this about his priest. I, I don't know him personally, but I'm sure he's a nice man, a decent man. Eli seems to have been a, a nice man, a kind and good man in his own right. But as far as being a leader in the church, they had kind of the same problem. He wasn't teaching anything beyond ritual. 
And alongside Eli, you had his two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who were serving as priests. And you would hope, like, well, maybe at least these guys are doing something. The only thing that Hophni and Phineas were told were doing was stealing from the offerings that were brought to church and sleeping with the women who volunteered at the church. That was what they saw as their sort of role as priests. Samuel was aware of this, and he rebuked them. He warned them, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. They didn't listen to him. And then Samuel didn't remove them from their office. He allowed his sons to continue serving as priests. Again, there's kind of a caution that we take into our own lives there, right? We can't not hold our leaders in church accountable to God's word. I'll, I'll relate another story here. Uh, so I know a man who got his, he's always been in church. He loves church. He loves what it is. And he's got a passion for church. He got his ordination online so he can call himself a pastor. And he fills in at churches in his area as kind of a guest preacher, you know, a fill-in speaker on particular weekends, you know, whenever they're looking for somebody. Um, when I met him, he and his wife had just gotten married. They already had a seven-month-old baby. Now, right, there's some things to talk about there. But what he told me was when she got pregnant as his girlfriend still, he wasn't sure that he should marry her or not. He wasn't certain about that. Okay, this is a man who's given a pulpit to preach and teach God's word, law and gospel to people, and yet he was not certain at the time that he should marry his pregnant girlfriend. There's a line to thread here, right? So one, Christians are not called to stand over people in righteous, angry judgment all the time. We're just not. Throughout the Bible, it's very clear. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all recognize it. We all note that we don't come before God with anything special to offer him just because we're better than some other person. We don't look, God doesn't look at us that way. God just doesn't and we ought not look at ourselves or other people in such a way either. Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that if, if we're going to sort of puff ourselves up in our own righteousness and our own adherence to God's law, we had better bring to him a perfect righteousness, a perfect adherence to God's law. We had better be better than everyone else. We had better be Jesus if we want to boast about how good we are. None of us are. None of us can do so. So, we don't come at people with a, 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 an angry and, and self-righteous, puffed up, prideful kind of judgment. No, instead, when it becomes necessary to, to speak to a brother or sister about sin, we do it with, with humility, with gentleness and compassion, and awareness of the fact that if somebody took a microscope to our lives, we would not look perfectly pretty either. But we can do all that and still hold leaders in the church accountable to standards. There are things which I could do as a pastor, which if I would be found out, you should remove me from my office. You should not suffer me to continue as your pastor, if I would be found out to be unfaithful to my wife, if I would be found out to be abusive toward my family, if I would be found out to be stealing from the church, do not allow me to keep standing up here preaching. Could I stay here and worship with you all as a member of this church, you know, given obvious repentance? Yeah, sure, totally. One thing, allow me to continue as a pastor? God forbid. Eli was not strong enough to do this with his sons. And why? Well, maybe one, 
He was just afraid of what that would do to ministry, right? Where are you going to find a couple more priests to keep serving? Maybe he had a soft spot for his sons. I would guess that it's probably both of these things. But it was a problem. And the way that God's word depicts Eli, we do have the indication that he was a believer, that he personally was convinced that he was a sinner who was in need of a savior, that he believed that, and praise be to God. But as a leader in the church, he was a poor leader in the church. He failed to teach the word of God. He failed to lead according to the word of God. Now, this is the part where Samuel's life sort of puts God's grace on display for us. Right? What would his, his people, his church, deserve at that point? His people don't want to hear from him. They're not interested in hearing the word. His leaders don't care about what his word says. God would have every right to wash his hands of his church, walk away from it, start over somewhere else. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends his word directly to the next generation. He comes, Samuel. Samuel, at night, he wants to raise up new leadership for this, the church, these people whom he loves. So when Eli realizes who it is that's addressing Samuel, finally, at last, he gives him some really good teaching. He tells him, say, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's exactly what Samuel replies, and it's a beautiful reply for two reasons. One, right, it acknowledges who he is before God. He just says, your servant. That's all that we are before God. We are just servants standing before an almighty master. But the second, even more beautiful thing that this reply does is that it acknowledges God's grace, right? When, when God wants to give a message to Samuel, he doesn't sort of abruptly wake him up, right? Shaking him out of bed, dazzling him with power and glory and splendor. Instead, he gently comes and he calls Samuel, Samuel. And he invites Samuel to invite him to speak. Isn't that incredible? The, the almighty God of the universe, the creator of all things, lets Samuel be the one who says, okay, speak, Lord. I'm listening. When we get these views of God's character in the Bible, of who he is, this kind of grace and compassion and mercy and tenderness, over and over the Bible calls on us to reflect that character toward one another in the church, toward others in the world. Tenderness and compassion and love and mercy and grace. And this shows us, this when God speaks to Samuel here, when God comes to Samuel to bring him a word, it shows us how we should share God's word with people. Tenderly and compassionately, invitingly. Right, there are times in the Bible where God speaks with fur firmness and force. And so at times we Christians are called to speak with force and firmness. But over and over throughout the Bible, what we see is that when God opens up dialogue with someone, when God initiates conversation, he invites, he speaks with compassion and grace and love. That's how he speaks to Samuel here. Samuel, Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. It's important that we think about how it is that God speaks to us when he shares his word because we do have a word from God to share. We have the message of Jesus, the one who, as the writer to the Hebrews told us earlier, provided for purification for all sin, sits on the throne of heaven, reigning over all things for our good. That kind of good news, that kind of wonderful news, we get to share that. And it is a word from God. 
right? Maybe it's not coming directly to you like it did to Samuel. It didn't come to me directly like it did to Samuel. I had to read it in the scriptures and you have to read it in the scriptures, but it's still God's word. You don't have to worry that you didn't receive it immediately, right? Just just Im- directly like that. You don't have to worry that God wasn't standing there calling out your name, Samuel, Samuel, like he was that night as I explained to the kids. In your baptism, you have God speaking your name. March 26th or 27th, 1994. Tim, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was God speaking my name, calling my name. Your baptism is also God speaking your name, calling your name, calling you into his family and giving you a word to share. Still haven't talked about what the word is that Samuel's ultimately given to share. And we do need to. It's a hard one, right? Our our text here wraps up at the point that God is about to speak to Samuel. We don't get it here. It is kind of a hard word. God tells Samuel that the time of judgment has come for Eli and his family, that because of Eli's failure to lead and his son's wicked rebellion against his design for his church, God's going to remove them from their office. And Hophni and Phinehas themselves, he tells them, will be removed by their deaths. They're going to die in a heated battle against Israel's enemies. It's a hard word. It's a, a, a tragic word. And Samuel in the morning, Eli comes and he tells him, he asks Samuel, Samuel, what, what word did God bring you? It's hard. This, this 12-year-old boy has to tell this man who he looks up to as a father, a grandfather, right? You've got, at night, Eli tells him, my son, go and lie down. There's a love, there's a tenderness between the two of them, and, and Samuel has to share this hard word with Eli about what's going to happen to him, about what's going to happen to his sons. At times, the word that we're called to share as God's people is also hard, difficult, But we have a word of consolation here in what God announces to Samuel. As we think about the times when the church needs leaders, what God promises here in this account is that he will raise up leaders for his church. He will raise up people who will share God's word with his people. It's a word of promise for us as church is, as the church. It is still also a word of warning for us as individual Christians. Let us never take God's word for granted, as Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, the people of Israel did. Right? God does promise that he's going to preserve his word in one place or another. He's going to raise up leaders somewhere who will share that word. He doesn't promise anywhere that he's going to raise up another Samuel in our midst. Someone else who's going to directly be given God's word to bring it directly to us. Let's not test our God by our attitude toward his word. Those are all some warnings some thoughts of application, right, that we can take from Samuel's life. But again, what I want to bring out for you, Samuel's life over and over just emphasizes for us the grace, the mercy, the compassion, the the commitment of God toward his people. When God's people had lost interest in him and his word, he still cared for them. He sent that word fresh, newly, through Samuel, where God's leaders had failed to lead his people, he raised up Samuel, and then he would raise up later new kings, new priests to serve his people once again because he loves his people. People of the Old Testament and his people of the New Testament. God loves us. 
and all of this. I want to take it back to Hannah. All of that God does after just listening to this one woman on her knees there in church, praying for a baby and granting her that request. All of this comes out of that. If there's one thing we can kind of take away from the life of Samuel, it's, it's maybe that. That those small moments in our lives when we're seeking God, seeking him in prayer, seeking him in his word, begging him to show us his, his promised love and compassion and grace. Those moments matter a lot more than we sometimes think they do. Right? Whether our prayers particularly get answered like Hannah's did, whether God particularly does something like that, ultimately at every moment that we are like Hannah, clinging to God, clinging to his love, clinging to his promises, he's growing us. He's growing our faith in him. He's growing our love for one another. So friends, uh, may God richly always grant us such blessings according to his promises. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today on Grace of God Sermon Cast. We hope this episode has been a source of inspiration and reflection for you. As we wrap up, we want to remind you that Grace of God Lutheran Church is here for you, and we invite you to be a part of our community. If you have any questions, if you want to learn more about our services or simply connect with us, you can visit our website at graceofgod.church. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay updated on future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's content, please consider leaving us a review. Your feedback means a lot to us and helps others discover the message we're sharing. Before we go, a quick reminder that our Sunday worship services are held at 510 Deer Park Avenue, Dix Hills, New York, at 9.30 a.m. every Sunday. We would be delighted to have you join us in person and experience the warmth and fellowship of our community. Thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, may the grace of God be with you always.